If you're a guest with us today, not only are we delighted that you're here, but we're in a summer series called Lifelines, and we're going through favorite passages of Scripture, the lifelines that mean so much to this congregation. We did a, we did a survey <clears throat> early in the year and asked people to put down their favorite passages of Scripture, and one of them that you all listed <clears throat> as a top passage was James chapter 1. Actually, you listed several chapters in James, but chapter 1 got the most comments from you here, and so this morning we're going to take a look at lifelines of practical application from from the first chapter of James. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there or your phones or your smart tablets or whatever you're using for looking at the Word of God this morning. James has long been one of my favorite books of the New Testament. And I've always considered James uh, a thrilling book. And I think part of it is because it is such a practical book. When James writes, it's stuff that you can just put into practice. It's clear. It's understandable. I like things that are clear. I like things that are directly to the point, and I think that's why I like the book of James. As a matter of fact, I like any good advice that is clear and to the point. Uh, a good friend of mine sent me an email recently that had a whole list of good practical application things, things that you can actually use on a daily basis. One of them was about the embarrassment. Have, have you ever done this? You've, you've gone up to a door and, and you've pushed when you should have pulled? You know, the embarrassment that comes, <laughs> I read about, I immediately thought of this uh, old Gary Larson cartoon, and maybe some of you have seen this in the past, but this is one of those that, I, that I've uh, <laughs> always found to be kind of humorous. Anyway, the, the advice was simply this, when approaching a door, look for the hinges. If you see them, if the hinges are on the outside, pull. If you can't see the hinges, they're on the inside, push. Now, some doors may have hidden hinges and it won't work, but for the most part, that's pretty good advice. Save you some time, maybe some embarrassment. I like things that I can apply to my daily living. You go to our bookstore here, uh, and Janet can help you order a life application study Bible if she doesn't have one on the shelf already this morning. And those are, are Bibles that have study notes with them that are designed to be applicable to our daily living. My favorite sermons to listen to are those that are applicable to the way I live on a daily basis. So James has that feel to it this morning. And that's really good because in our world, in our lives, there just, there's, a, there's a lot of stuff out there that isn't real smart, isn't real practical, uh, isn't real usable. Uh, for instance, I, I, I read about this week, you know, what do you do? If you are having a dinner party and you realize too late in the game that you have no after-dinner mints. Big problem, right? What do you do? Well, this person suggested that you freeze a tube of toothpaste. You know where this is going, don't you? And then you slice it into thin wafers and serve those after dinner as your mints. Cool and refreshing and makes people's breath smell good is the way it went. I tried to find out the guy's name who submitted that because I don't ever want to go to his house for, <laughs> for dinner. The, the, the wisdom of the book of James is never frivolous it, uh, or absurd. It is reasonable. It is practical. It is sound. It is spiritual. It is a code of conduct for how the Christian should live out his or her daily life, putting his or her faith into practical application and action. And he speaks clearly. So this morning, I can't, I can't deal with all the lifelines in chapter 1, but I can deal with some of the highlight ones. And so here are some of my favorites out of chapter 1. First one is practical lifelines for getting through the tough times. Begin in verse 2 of chapter 1, if you will. 
Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Blessed is the man, this is verse 12, blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're saying, you said this was practical. Who in their right mind thinks joyfully when they're going through tough times? Well, you got to understand what James says here. He doesn't say, be happy when things are bad. That, that would be absurd. That would be ridiculous. Nobody feels good. Nobody is happy during the tough times. But that's not what James is suggesting. James is suggesting here that we consider it pure joy. And, and pure joy means genuine, sincere, without any kind of, of, of fault here. He's saying that we have pure joy when we're going through the tough times because you got to look on the other side of the tough times and know that God can take the tough times and bring good out of them. He's not talking about this fake kind of joy. He's not talking about this, you put on a good face even though you're dying on the inside kind of joy. He's talking about a joy that is based in a relationship with the one who lives in you, knowing that the one who lives in you can take whatever circumstances in your life and bring potential and positive things out of that. Let's break it down just a little bit. The word trial or testing here means an external adversity. In other words, this is not something you've done, okay? This is something that's come at you from the outside, kind of blindsided you. And, and, and the word testing here is actually the word, uh, 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 the anxious adventure of a young bird leaving the nest for the first time. We, uh, we had some purple finches actually raise their family in one of the ferns hanging uh, around our house. And uh, just this past week, we watched as the baby birds took their first flight out of the fern. There was a lot of flapping and chirping and everything else, but they made it to the trees, and the fern is empty. That first flight's kind of scary. Just like us. When you're going through the tough time, it, it's pretty scary, but you've got to test your wings of faith. You've you got to launch out. Sometimes say, okay, God, I don't know what's going on here, but I trust you to make the most of it. Because most of the time, when we're going through tough times, the question that really comes to us in our minds is, what's going on? What did I do to deserve this? It's not that you deserved anything. It's just life in this world. James doesn't suggest that the trial is joyful, but he says that if you look at the tough times with joy, anticipation, expectation, the joy that comes from a relationship, not happiness. Happiness is contingent on what happens in your life. Joy grows out of an inner relationship with God. If you look at that with joy, then, as he goes on, he said, the testing of your faith will develop perseverance. And then perseverance will finish its work so that you may become mature and complete, not lacking in anything. You get the point? Sometimes it's the tough times of life that bring us to maturity, wisdom, completeness in our life. God is not the designer of bad things. God is the designer of the potential and the positive that may come out of the bad thing. An Englishman in his mid-50s 
had amassed about $70,000 that he was going to invest in the U.S. stock market because he thought this was sufficient for him to retire on. And so he took his savings and invested it in the American U.S. stock market in August of 1929. Less than 90 days after that, the stock market, as you know, crashed, the, the, the worst crash in, in history. And, uh, and he lost nearly all of it. Now that, that pretty much sent him into depression. Two years later, 1931. Uh, he was basically, uh, after spending his entire life in politics in, in England, was, was basically put out to pasture. He wanted to be in the cabinet. They wouldn't let him in the cabinet. They just kind of sent him back to his country home. That actually discouraged him even more than losing uh, the, the wealth in the, in the crash of 1929. That same year, 1931, he decided he would take a trip to Canada uh, and tour Canada and then come down into the United States. And by the time he'd come down, they, he was in New York City. And I don't know if it was because of the way the traffic flows in England being different than the way the traffic flows here. He looked the wrong way, stepped off to a curb into the path of an oncoming uh, taxi, got hit about 35, 40 miles an hour, nearly killed him. And he's recovering in a New York hospital, discouraged, disheartened, depressed. He writes his son, actually his wife wrote the note for him, he couldn't write it himself, wrote his son in, in England, and he said, I don't think I will ever recover from these three trials in my life. And he pointed to the financial trial, and he pointed to the political trial, and he pointed to his physical trial. That was 1931. 57 years old, 1931. Nine years later, England calls upon Winston Churchill in the darkest period of their history in the 20th century to lead them through World War II, which he did with greatness. Sometimes it is the tough moments of life, it's the trials of life that, that God can take and out of that mold us, mature us, complete us so that we are ready to step into his service somehow, some way. What we may not be able to see during the tough moment, God can. And there are tough times and trials in life, marital discord, financial stresses, job losses, unexpected medical crises. These are sometimes viewed as setbacks, but God may see them as stepping stones to get you where you need to be, to use you for some incredible moment in time. And isn't that really the essence of the story of Job in the Old Testament? Job never got an answer for his questions, but the end of the story was greater than the beginning of the story, even though he never understood the tough times. Here then is the good news for us. When you practice patience with God, when you persevere through the tough times, when you consider it joy that through the tough times you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that's where the joy is. You will come out on the other side better than when you went into the trial. So the question shouldn't really be, why is this happening to me? The deeper and more important question is, God, use this to build character in me and help me mature to become who you want me to be. Here's the second lifeline that, that I see in chapter one, and it's this practical lifelines for avoiding dumb decisions. In a word, James says, <laughs> pray. Take a look at what James says in verse 5. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, and if you lack wisdom, you, you make dumb decisions. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him? But, he, but when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. James says, pray for wisdom. Make dumb decisions, pray that God will give you wisdom. Now, we talked about wisdom a couple weeks ago, so I'm not going to talk a lot about that. Just to remind you that wisdom is the practical application of what you know. God offers us wisdom in answer to our prayer to help us make smarter choices in life. But he makes this one request. And it is that when you pray, believe that I'm going to keep my promise. I promised I'll give you wisdom, but you got, you got to pray believing. If you're not, you're a double-minded man. Now, here's, here's the concept. Belief is, is one mindset. Disbelief in something is an altogether different mindset. Your mind is working in a different way. And, and doubt, doubt is when you're trying to make both of these mindsets compatible. And you just can't. Belief and disbelief can't come together compatibly. Now, you can deal with the doubt. You can, you can deliberate. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the person who just never comes to grips with anything. Not sure if I want to trust God, but then again, i got to pray, but I'm not sure he'll answer. That's that double-mindedness that's going on. To doubt is to be double-minded. I like this old adage, doubt is standing in two boats with one foot in each. That's a dangerous place to stand. That's a dumb decision. So pray for wisdom and be assured that God does keep his promises. Here's the third lifeline. Practical lifelines for careful communication. Look at verse 19. My dear brothers, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. For a man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do you want to increase your communication skills? you want to be a better communicator <laughs> in your home, in your business, uh, with, with your friends? Okay. James gives us three really succinct, simple pieces of communication that are incredibly important. First of all, quick to listen. Someone wisely equipped, you can win more friends with your ears than with your mouth. And it is so true. Good communication begins with the ears. Even under the best of circumstances, researchers tell us that 20% of all communication is misunderstood because we don't listen well. 20% is misunderstood because we aren't using our ears. First of all, James says, you listen to the Word of God. Everything we need for developing spiritual maturity is contained in the Scriptures. It covers subjects like attitudes, marriage, parenting, working relationships, friendships, worship, work, leisure, materialism, benevolence, and the list goes on. Listen carefully to God. And then he says, listen to others. Be quick to listen. Those that we love and we trust Sometimes their helpful words may be a little bit painful, but because they love us, they're only doing what is best for us. So listen to them. Don't throw up a wall. Don't build a roadblock. Uh, don't, don't shut them out. If they love you, if it's somebody you trust, listen carefully because it may be good advice. 
Proverbs 27, 17, you know it well. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. I need you, you need others here. We all need each other to help us be the best we can. Sometimes it may not be the most pleasant words, but listen carefully so that you can learn what will help you most. So, be quick to listen. Secondly, be slow to speak. Someone wisely said, sometimes you can make more effective statement by holding your tongue. It is estimated that the average person has approximately 30 conversations during the course of a day, speaking enough words for a 60-page single-spaced manuscript. That's just the average. Other people are into two and three volumes of of, uh, conversation. Since we spend so much time every day talking, shouldn't we be careful with the words that we use? That's why James says, be slow to speak. When you are slow in speaking, it gives you time to think before you speak. Because a lot of us have said some things we haven't thought of yet. And that's a dangerous thing as well. So take your time. Think before you open your mouth. And then he says, be slow to become angry. Anger is a growing problem in our culture. One anger management study concluded that one out of every five Americans has an anger management issue. One out of every five. According to the FBI statistics, the most common reason for homicide is arguments in the home, domestic arguments. 28% of homicides grow out of anger in the home compared to gang homicides, gang-related homicides, which top just about 7% of all the homicides. So this issue of anger is a major problem. Uh, Anger-related violence is the reason for 22% of divorces. Studies show that 79% of violent children witnessed violence between their parents while growing up. According to the FAA, in a five-year period, there was 1,655 incidents of air rage. That's where customers directed deep anger toward airline employees. The term road rage didn't even officially enter the English language until 1997 when it was first listed in the New Words edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. Isn't it a shame we even have to have a word to describe anger among drivers? You see, uncontrolled anger works against the life God desires for us. I like what actor Chuck Norris said. He said, men are like steel. When they lose their temper, they lose their worth. And oftentimes, our anger stems from those things that in the long run really don't matter. I have seen some crazy reactions on the golf course. (laughs) I've heard groans and screeches. I've seen guys break clubs on trees over their knees, pound the ground with their drivers in anger, kick the tires on the golf cart, and say words that they ought not to say, and that's all after they've learned I'm a preacher. I read, I read this week of one guy who got so exasperated in a round of golf that he got to, I don't think he even finished the round, but it was going so bad that he finally just chucked his entire bag of clubs, the bag, everything, into the lake, stormed off the green and headed to the parking lot. About 10 minutes later, he comes back, hanging his head, wades into the water, 
pulls up the bag, unzips it, pulls out his car keys, and then throws them farther out <laughs> into the lake. <laughs> you see how silly we look when we let anger control us instead of controlling our anger? And, and, and there's a reason that anger is bad. And you say, well, yeah, it hurts other people. Yes, it does. It hurts other people. And that in, that in itself is a tragedy. But it hurts us as well. When we're angry, when we're angry and we carry that anger, it hurts us as well because anger leads to resentment, resentment to bitterness, bitterness to grudges. And when you're holding on to a grudge, you're carrying something that you ought not carry. And I'm here to tell you, it'll weigh you down pretty quick. How much does this weigh? This bottle of water. It's 16 ounces. Give you a hint, about a pound. All right, 16 ounces, about a pound. If I lift this up, take a sip of this water, set it down, I don't even notice that. If I hold this bottle out here for a minute, I don't notice that. But if I held this bottle out here for 15 minutes, I, I would begin to notice that. If I hold it for an hour, I'd be hurting. If I held it all day, my arm and hand would be numb and to a point of paralysis. How much does it weigh? Depends on how long you hold it. You see, grudges are like that. You hold on to a grudge for a few minutes and let it go, you don't even notice that. All of us do that. You hold on to it for a few minutes, oh, you think about it for a few hours, it'll begin to hurt. You hold on to a grudge day after day after day, and you will be spiritually paralyzed. Let it go. You, you can't keep holding on to these things. That's why anger is so bad. So when you feel yourself losing your temper, when you feel yourself getting angry, you can count to 10 if you want to, but that will basically just stave off the inevitable for about 10 seconds. Counting is not the solution. May I suggest that you keep a few Bible verses handy. Write them on a, on a card, stick it in your purse or put it in your billfold or put them on the notes section of your phone so that you can call them up real quickly. Uh, verses like Proverbs chapter 15 verse 18, a hot-tempered man stirs up dissension, but a patient man calms a quarrel. Proverbs 16, 32, better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Proverbs 29, 11, a fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. And if you find your anger problem getting worse and worse and it's hurting your family deeply, if it's not just the normal frustration of life, when you find it getting a hold of you, please take time, get some help, will you? Uh, talk to any of us on staff. We'll point you in the direction of some professionals that will be able to help you work through that because your life is too short, your family's too important, your relationships are too meaningful for you to mess it up with your anger and holding your grudges. Well, I guess you could say that James chapter 1 is a chapter that's a call to action. Now, now I know this. Some of you are going to leave here today, <clears throat> and you won't give another thought to anything that we've talked about today. You'll go out the door, you'll forget even that, that we, we, we had a sermon today. I, I understand that. I get how that goes. When you forget everything, though, that the book of James has said, you can forget my sermon if you want to, that's okay, but don't forget what the book of James has said. If you do, 
You walk out of here and you'll grow cynical because you'll keep focusing on the disappointment of the tough times instead of living with the joy in what God can do through those tough times and to see how he can bring you out on the other side. Or you'll go right on making dumb decisions because you'll forget to pray for wisdom. Or you'll continue to be lousy at communication because you won't take time to really listen and you'll speak without thinking and you'll just get angry and become bitter in the end. You see, James offers one more lifeline in chapter 1. I don't want you to forget it. It comes in verse 22, and it says, Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. In other words, be a person of action. Don't just read through James and say, well, that was nice. Put it into practice. Make changes in your life. Be responsible. This is good stuff that James writes about. This is God's call to action. And you listen to what God has to say. And if you only listen, you miss the point. James says, here's God's word. Now, put it into action. And when you do, it'll change your life. And so the question I've got for you this morning is, are you listening to the voice of God through his word? Can you tune all the chaos out and, and just hear him? <clears throat> I don't know if, if you've ever noticed it, but sometimes when you go to a sporting event where there are thousands of people there and, and they're screaming and hollering, you know, the, the, the noise can be deafening. I've been in assembly hall, and I know you have been too, at times when the crowd is so intensely loud that my ears ring as a result. And then I notice something. When the coach hollers out something in the midst of all of that screaming. The guys on the floor hear him. It's not that the coach's voices are louder. It's not that the player's ears are better at hearing. It's because they have tuned their attention to the sound of that voice, and they can shut out every, everything else and hear that because they've practiced with him for hours. They've listened to him for hours, and when he speaks, they tune out the rest of the chaos to hear his voice. You see, that's what God wants us to do. God wants us to cut out all of the chaos, that we know his voice so well that when his word speaks to us, we tune out everything else, we listen to him, and we put his lifelines into practice. Just do it.